The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Tenakoto, tenakoto, tenatato katoa. This is Gone by Lunchtime. My name is Toby Manhire and uh, we are here on Thursday, March 28th. It's now 13 days um, since the attacks in Christchurch, um, in which 50 members of the Christchurch Muslim community were murdered while they were worshipping. Um, Annabelle Lee is with me, Ben Thomas is with me. Uh, Annabelle, it was a kind of astonishing moment and everybody around the country tried to come to terms with what had happened as it unfolded um, on fr- that Friday afternoon. Mm. Yeah, I, I think um, at first there was like a news alert sent out saying that gunshots had been heard near a mosque in Christchurch and mm. initially I actually didn't think very much of it I just thought oh you know it's some person who's accidentally let off a firearm while cleaning it or something because those things simply do not happen here in New Zealand and then um, soon after there were reports that you know six people were dead and we turned on the television in the office and there was that really startling photo of the police, you know, the armed offenders outside the hospital because there was reports of, you know, a possible shooting there and, you know, all of the uh, information started to flow through and um, just an absolutely um, terrifying, shocking, unbelievable, unfathomable thing to have happened here in modern times in Aotearoa. Ben, how did it unfold for you? Yeah, well, I was just at work, probably like most people. Mm-hmm. Um, same kind of thing. I think the first thing I saw about it was a tweet, you know, that shots had been heard. Mm. Um, you know, I immediately thought, you know, possibly a disgruntled ex-husband, you know, stalking around with an air rifle or, or a twenty-two, you know, who was going to be sort of picked up in short order. Um then there were reports of, you know, the, the first casualties. And obviously, you know, news organisations try to be sort of conservative about this, mm. you know, until things are confirmed. So, mm. you know, so, you know, even, even though it was, you know, essentially a massacre, um, you know, and, and it all kind of happened at once, you know, the toll sort of, you know, rose through the afternoon as sort of facts could be established. Mm. Um, and, you know, so 
I, I think, you know, I, I, I heard that, you know, there were six dead and then I emerged from a sort of two hour meeting and it was 49, you mm. know, and, mm. it, you know, it's it, like Annabelle said, you know, it's the sort of thing that you just, it seems incomprehensible in New Zealand. Um, you know, we have had this sort of kind of cultural buffer, I think, you know, um, in the sense that, you know, not only have police been, um, you know, talking to government for you know a decade now about reforming the gun laws in New Zealand, mm. um, but you know I, I had talked to people who had been you know working in that area um, last year who had been saying you know this actually needs to be urgently addressed. You know this is extremely mm. lax, and you know b- because of that kind of sort of sense of cultural complacency where we have well this just that just doesn't happen in New Zealand. New Zealanders don't do that. You know I didn't even you know I, I never even sort of turned my mind to the realities of what they were talking about, mm. you know, you just kind mm. of assume, well, that that won't, you know, mm. ever be the case here. And I guess that is a cultural divide, eh, Ben, because, you know, for, for people like us, um, we've never thought that, that anything like that could possibly happen here in Aotearoa, but for members of the Muslim community, they have been um, raising red flags for, you know, quite some time that, you know, perhaps not of this level but certainly something quite serious could happen because they experience the really ugly side of racism and Islamophobia in New Zealand every day just doing simple things like going out to buy groceries, driving in their car, dropping off their tamariki at school so I think you know for me that's one of been, been one of the really um, compelling insights too is realising that um, you know the experience of Muslims living in New Zealand is not perhaps what we would like to think it is. Well, the, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you know, not, you know, totally accepting that. I think there's, you know, in, in terms of, you know, if you, which you can't, but if you take away, you know, the sort of the context of it, I think everyone kind of accepted that eventually New Zealand would sort of be subject to a terrorist attack of some kind you know, from whatever source. Um, but I think nobody really expected the scale, you mm. know, of this and, and really ever thought that was plausible, you know. Um, and because, you know, as, you know, we've, we've seen actually, you know, with, with, with pr- probably the exception of white supremacy, uh, white supremacist attacks, um, you know, the death toll in terrorist attacks overseas has actually sort of gone down over the last few years. You know, it kind of bumps up and then comes down as as authorities get better at dealing with different threats. Um, so, yeah, it... it uh, you know, the, um, <laughs> and one, one of the things that was striking, I think, to a lot of people, and, and that I include myself in that, um, was just how lax our gun laws really were. Um, just how really straightforward it was with a Category A license to purchase um, military-style semi-automatic weaponry, you mm. know, or to put it together if you just got the component parts. Um, you know, just order it off the internet. I mean, extraordinary. Were you surprised by that, Annabelle? Um, yes and no. Um you know, I think Heather Duplessy Allen, although it wasn't specifically about semi-automatic mm. rifles, I think she showed how incredibly mm. lax um, our gun laws are. They haven't been changed in 26 years. Um, you know, successive governments have had plenty of 
of opportunity to do something about it and haven't. But yeah, um, yeah it is disturbing to think that someone who is clearly unhinged um, and made no bones about his political views all over social media and 8chain and all of those places um, was able to, you know, purchase weapons like that online and um, and carry out an atrocity. Particularly because, you know, what we're seeing, um, you know, in America and now in New Zealand um is what I think what the British writer Laurie Penny described as basically gig economy fascism. So you know these these mass murderers starting off with Columbine, and you know through to the present day, you know most of them are not people who have been in trouble with the law previously. Mm. The, the mm. exception to that is generally domestic violence, mm. um, and they. You know, and, and in many cases, they've purchased the arms very shortly before the attacks, um, so they don't have a history of, you know, uh, any kind of bad behaviour. You know, you know, in a legal sense that, that would sort of raise red flags. I think the um, you know the be- the best argument, the most compelling argument for the gun reform that was obviously inevitable anyway. Um, you know, once the attack had happened, uh, actually came from the owner of Gun City. Um, in an extraordinary interview that he yeah. did where he admitted that he sold two weapons that could be converted to semi uh, you know military style semi automatics you know over the internet to yeah. this guy and said there was nothing in yeah, there was nothing that raised any flags with them and they had no reason to believe there would be a problem with that which i think is <laughs> the best reason why you 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 can't have that kind of model ever um, you can't rely on you know somebody whose job is to make a margin selling guns being the gatekeeper between mass deaths and society yeah, yeah there was an extraordinary moment when david is it david Tipple, is that his name, um, gave that press conference in which he refused to answer any questions beyond the very details of the transaction um, in which these weapons were sold. Um, I haven't heard him pipe up since. He's in the past been quite a, a vocal opponent of tightening um, gun rules. He's threatened court action in relation to um, his ability to be able to import certain weapons. He's um, was once convicted in America of attempting to take firearms onto an aeroplane and his chicken baggage without having cleared the correctly. He was once recorded um, speeding at 181 kilometres an hour in his Audi. That's quite fast. In the depths of the... Um, uh, so he's a kind of uh, unwelcome presence in this whole debate. On the gun law reform thing, though, um, just quickly on that, the speed with which the the proposed reforms were turned around, which included a kind of um, interim measure of pushing up the requirement to an E-category licence, I think. Yeah, so imme- immediately. It's all going through. Yes. That was done, Ben. Uh, uh, I mean, you've been closer to that kind of policy engine than many of us. That's probably the sort of thing that would normally take six months, nine months to work through, wouldn't it? Yeah, look, in the ordinary course of business, um, you know, developing, you know, working up a cabinet paper, you would probably do consultation, although I think, you know, the the need for that is, you know, completely gone now. Um, And then you'd, yeah, you'd you'd work something through the normal legislative process. So you'd be looking at, you know, probably about a a year and a half to completion, probably. 
obviously that's not an option right now. Um, you know, if there's anything that we've seen from attacks like this overseas, particularly the United States, um, particularly post Columbine, is that they just they set out a blueprint which anyone can follow, and if you don't disrupt the ability to follow that blueprint, they will happen again. When Columbine happened, I thought you know that's a, a you know a uniquely awful one off. Um, you know, that kind of erupted into into reality, and now it now it's so normal in the United States um, that you know you have Indiana teachers getting practice practice shot in the neck by rubber bullets just to prepare them for the next school siege. So, you know, they 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 did move very quickly. They had a bit of a blueprint for it, which was you know for gun reform, which was the Australian model mm. um, after the Port Arthur massacre. The reforms that the government is, are introducing are not uh, as extensive as the Australian reforms. Um, so they're getting rid of these, you know, guns that can be turned into military-style semi-automatics, um, which they, just, I'm, I'm told is something to do with being centre fire rather than rim fire. And when you look at the sort of difference between those those bullets between the semi-automatics that are being banned and the semi-automatics that will still be available. Um, you know, they're sort of three times as big and basically just designed to kill people. Um, so in, a, in Australia, sort of semi-automatic 22s, you know, just your normal kind of farm rifle, um, are restricted. You have to get a special license to have one of those, and you basically have to be a farmer or a pest controller to be able to buy one of those in Australia. Um, in New Zealand... The Prime Minister was a bit slippery with her words. She said we'd reached the same point as Australia um, by simply not banning those guns and it was the same as Australia because only farmers had them anyway, uh, which is not strictly true, but you know, people who know about these things seem to think that the difference is, a, is pretty marginal and that we that it's not a huge public risk, you know, at least in terms of the ability to sort of slaughter dozens of people at once in the same way as Christchurch. Can I digress somewhat and just go back to your point about Columbine? I actually read um, a book that was written by Dylan Klebold's Klebold's, um, mother on on what happened there, and I think for anyone who works in the media or is going to be in a position where they're going to be reporting on this issue or... um, God forbid stories like it I think it's a really important read because it talks about issues and it's a discussion that we need to have as the media um, for those mass shooters um, naming the number or putting a number on how many people have been killed or injured is a really dangerous thing because essentially it becomes um, an aspirational target that um, subsequent shooters try to outdo each other mm. so I think we need to think really Correct. carefully in the media about you know how we report on you know the number of dead the number you know of injured in a way that actually does honor the individuals who have lost their lives but also doesn't create an atmosphere where other potential shooters are, are wanting to outdo that the other thing too is um, is I think we need to be careful about comparing, you know, mass shootings like Columbine to what happened in Christchurch because Christchurch was clearly politically motivated, whereas Columbine was, you know, one deeply depressed child and and another child who was probably a sociopath. Um, 
and by chance sort of mostly, ta- well, you know, did target black, ch- uh, black children, but it wasn't based on a on an awful political philosophy or anything. So I think it's important um, to differentiate those things. And that was one of the things that I found interesting about the media coverage to begin with was how long it actually took for us to call it a terrorist attack in the media and, and international reporting. You know, when we see these types of situations, we often refer to them very quickly as a suspected terrorist attack. But it really wasn't until the following day that the media started doing that. And I'm not sure if that's because we're so inexperienced about reporting these issues in our own country that we weren't sure, like, when do you start to call it a suspected terrorist attack or a terrorist attack, or if it's because of just, you know... And and part of that is the the different world that we sort of live in Mm. from, you know, the terrorism of old. You know, terrorism used to be conducted by... Groups or organisations, you know, the IRA, anarchist societies, you know, way a hundred years ago. Um, now it's you know, pe- people have struggled to kind of with this this concept of the lone wolf, you know, where they're like, oh, it was just you know one individual. But of course, these individuals, you know, Al Qaeda set this, you know, they started this um, pattern, you know, using the internet to sort of radicalise individuals who would never have any contact with the leadership hierarchies, you know, um, but but would be subscribing to the same doctrine, would have the sort of information available because of the informa- of the internet and news coverage of how to, you know, perpetrate a terrorist attack and, you know, and have the same goals. And so, so there is this, you know, there there is a bit of, there has been a bit of fuzziness, I think, in terms of whether people are sort of, you know, lone wolf terrorist attack. But I think, I think you know, you in, in a, a, in a you know, in an everyday sense, you know, it's certainly a terrorist attack. Actually, a good point was raised by a retired judge who said that the, the reason that you might not want to prosecute it as a terrorist, um, as, a te- as a terrorist act, mm. rather than just as a murder, is, you know, there has been a lot of discussion about, you know, is the defendant going to try and use the you know, use the trial as an opportunity to spout his insane mm. views mm. Um, and, you know, become a, you know, a, a celebrity of the worst kind or even worse, a meme, which yeah. is really what these guys are after. Mm. Um, and in order to prove terrorism charges, you have to prove that it had a, you know, a kind of ideological motive. Mm. And whereas murder, you don't need to prove anything about motive. And so you don't need to get into that evidence. Right. Mm. Ah, um, ah, uh, yeah. And there's, I mean, on that point and the, the, the fact of responsibly reporting Jacinda Ardern, who we'll come to in a moment, was mm. very clear on that point. She called it terrorist and terrorism in her second press conference mm. after she re- returned from New Plymouth. Um, and she was was also quite very strong in declaring that she would not name him. And, um, and 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 most most media have followed that along. I mean, obviously there are different imperatives for people who work in Actually, I news heard I heard his name used twice on during one RNZ report uh-huh. last night, and very quickly, um, a lot of people wrote in and and complained, and and Lisa Owen read that out. So. Um, 
the uh, someone was telling me actually it was someone I was talking to who works in, in a newsroom in London was who I was talking to about this said that that actually they couldn't remember what the guy's name was so it's kind of interesting that it seems mm. to generally I actually had, can't had I can remember a few consonants right. yeah but, you know um, I want to go back though or just briefly just on that point of online radicalization um, white supremacy I would just uh, recommend people have a look at a piece that we've run on the spinoff this morning by someone called Barath Ganesh who's a um, an ex- a researcher on white supremacist, um, white vic- victimhood, um, and how that works online. He talks about a swarm, and it's exactly what you're describing, Ben, in terms of the way that all those kind of memes and tropes um, metastasize online. And um, so they kind of have these shared narratives and shared grudges, um, but they don't actually need to necessarily even be in direct communication with one another. But I want to go back, um, Annabelle, to the point you made early on about the reality of being a Muslim in New Zealand. And there was um, one of the really powerful contributions in the days following was from from Anjum Rahman, Mm. who is the chair, I think, of the Islamic Women's Council, or certainly the spokesperson for the Islamic Women's Council. And um, it was it was, it was was an extremely, she wrote an extremely powerful piece, which we published as at RNZ. Um, she appeared on your program, The mm. Hui, um, and she basically said, don't come and tell us this occurred out of the blue or that it was unexpected. We've been bloody telling you this. We've been trying to bash down the doors in Wellington to mm. tell people about this for years. Mm. Yeah, they'd spoken to the SIS. Um, she, One of the things she said that I thought was interesting is since the rise of ISIS, um, you know, um, hate crimes and abuse and threats towards the Muslim community have massively increased and, of course, you know, with the rise of social media as well, um, um, it's... Um, difficult for them to to escape so one of the things that I have to say on the day I felt emotionally like I was swinging between um, feeling you know upset and mamai and podi and feeling so angry um, that this had been allowed to occur on on you know in our country, particularly when the offender had been so open about his intentions on social media. And I thought about people like Tami Iti and and Te Rangi Kemara and um, and Urs Signer and and those ones, um, you know, and what they went through, um, and the amount of effort that had been put into the two Hoi raids and yet here was a white supremacist who was able to post pictures of you know his weapons and magazines all over Twitter with you know people's names written all over them and and um, and where were our intelligence communities uh, it's um a lot of questions still to be answered around that, and um, I think Matthew Hooten um, raised some some really good points about it when, you know, he he thought that the um, the head of the was it the SIS. SIS should have offered her resignation immediately, and mm. I have to say that I agree with him. 
Um, well, yeah, and it may be yet that Andrew Little, who knows, um, faces further questions um, as he's in charge of that portfolio. I, because the question really is, were they looking the wrong way, isn't it? I have to say, you know, is it just another example of institutional racism in New Zealand that they're so busy running around after, um, you know, um, people in the Uriwera and supposed Māori nationalists and um, and the Muslim community that they weren't keeping an eye on um, a white, on you know what's happening in terms of white nationalism and the white supremacist movement here. Gamal Fowder, who's the Imam at Al Noor Mosque, um, which was where I think 42, 42 people were killed, um, gave a very powerful speech um, at Hagley Park last Friday, mm. um, and one of the things he said was. The martyrdom of 50 people and the injury of 42 did not come overnight. It was the result of the anti-Muslim rhetoric of some political re- leaders, media agencies and others. Um, and that kind of goes to that question. You said, Annabelle, that on that Friday afternoon you felt, I certainly felt that this sort of thing doesn't happen in New Zealand. Mm. Um and there were some of uh, the immediate response was, this isn't us, you know, this isn't us. And, you know, I can, I can understand exactly that sentiment. Mm. And yet, over, over the days that followed the hours and days, there was a growing sense that actually that's a bit simplistic. Mm. There is... Absolutely. It is us. Terrorism isn't us. And, you know, shooting people en masse in their place of worship isn't us. But... Um, racism is absolutely us and the denial of racism is absolutely us and it's been allowed to continue after this event and it's interesting when you see people on Twitter who you know have helped ramp up that environment doing the whole peace and love it's okay let's not politicize this issue the white defensiveness um, that occurred in the days afterwards um, was it was an, an, an illustration that it, this is exactly us. We do have a massive problem with racism in New Zealand, and we're absolutely in denial about it. Where I think it's particularly important <clears throat> is, you know, I, I you don't want to police people's grief. Everybody processes, you know, tough times in their own ways. Social media. Um, probably doesn't encourage people to um, put their best views forward immediately. Um, so I think there were a lot of bad reactions all around, you know, and it probably took about a week until, you know, we could focus on sort of, you know, going after people's bad takes rather than just sort of reflecting on what had happened. But um, I think, you know, where, you know, I... It, I don't think it's particularly productive to start pointing fingers at people and saying that they have blood on their hands and, you know, and some of the sort of more fiery kind of rhetoric that's followed this. Where the wider environment is very important is that, you know, the, the root of, the root of most of the terrible things that humans do to each other is, you know, dehumanization or, you know, to use sort of university language, othering. You know, seeing people who are different to yourself, you know, whether because of race or religion or sex, as sort of fundamentally different to you and less less human than you, and that doesn't require, you know, 
overt racism or hostility. Um, what it requires is just sort of, you know, ignorance or alienation or, um, you know, Media Watch uh, reported, I think, last week that, you know, there were 13,000, um, you know, news stories. Was it 13,000 over, over, you know, a period? Yeah, in preceding, preceding yeah, that, in that, that uh, you know, mentioned Muslims or Islam uh, and 12,000 of them, um, you know, had references to terrorism. And, you know, I probably didn't meet a Muslim New Zealander until I was about 25 years old. And that was post 9-11. Pretty much everything that I'd ever heard or read about Islam was through the lens of the 9-11 attacks and what was happening in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know. And when... When I finally met a coworker, you know, I, you know, I mean, it doesn't reflect well on me. It sounds very unworldly. I was pretty surprised to learn that he was just an ordinary Fijian Indian guy who took his family to Mount Roskill KFC every second Sunday because that's when they had halal fried chicken, hmm. you know, and and it's if if I could have that experience like in the early two thousands, I don't think there's any reason why you know that's not the same experience that other people are having growing up not you know they, they don't they don't meet or interact with uh, Muslim New Zealanders or they don't know that they do um, and there is this constant associate association between Islam and terrorism in the news because you know peaceful people going about their business you know working getting married having families um, you know attending mosque you know every week doesn't make the news and so unless you're exposed to that, um, you know, you, 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 you will sort of, you know, unconsciously have these negative associations where you somehow think that, you know, your neighbours are different from you um, because of the way that they worship or because of the group they belong to. You will particularly have those views too when you have people in key positions in the media with a big platform who who get to um, criticise you and you have no form, no way to to respond to those things. So that's part of the problem too, is that in New Zealand our media landscape is dominated by white middle class men um, who lean to the right and we don't have um, equal representation on the other side of the political spectrum. So we have Mike's Minute but we don't have Moana's Minute or Tamiiti time. We have... Um, you know, we have a number of, of commentators on the right, but we don't, but we don't have an equal number of of commentators on the left. And I've I've had this discussion with a with a colleague who you know is a big supporter of free speech and says, you know, I think people should just be allowed to say whatever we want, and we have to be big enough and grown up to hear it. And in theory, I agree with it. But actually, when only one side has a platform. Um, that doesn't work. And people say, oh, but you know, there's Twitter. Twitter is not the same as being in a publication like stuff. It doesn't have the mana or the perceived credibility of an organisation like the Herald. So until New Zealand, and I think this has been a stunning example of like we've all been running around using the same Muslim commentators and spokespeople over the last few weeks because there's such a paucity of them in the me in the media that we know of, like 
we haven't had, you know, in the past there hasn't been a regular column for a Muslim person in stuff or in the Herald or whatever. And or on I the think, spin-off, or, by the way. Or on but, the yeah. spin-off, and I think it's, a, you know, a, an issue that as the media we need to get serious about and address so that we have equal representation across the political spectrum, across, you know, New Zealand's communities, and we have strong ethnic representations right across the board. Um, I'm very, very here for Tummy Eti time and Moana's Minute. Um, Moana's Minute would be so good. Um, which you, you can do, or maybe we should do it. Moana Money Report. Oh, yeah. no, Moana Jackson. He's or Moana Money Report. Or, either, either or both Moana, of them Moanas. Or Moana from the film. Yeah, all um, free. <laughs> it's gonna be. It's gonna be our new podcast. Um, I, I, I think we have. There should be a bit of caution about. I like. I think that that's an that point is absolutely correct. Um, you know, we do need more diversity in the media. Um, you know, we we should hear from as many voices as possible. We should hear about things that are happening in the community. You know, that aren't all just you know. Uh, you know, that aren't crimes or accidents or, you know, the things that, you know, mm. the, it bleeds, it leads kind of news. Um, I, I, you know, this this shouldn't be a left-right thing. Um, you know, traditionally the right in New Zealand, you know, at least over the last sort of 20 or 30 years has been more um, international in terms of, you know, links with the world, in terms of welcoming immigrants. Um, and... You know, I, I I don't see that as as the key cleavage here, and I, I think it's a little unfortunate that people are, are trying to make that. I, at the same time, I think there are people on the right in New Zealand politics who probably actually need to get back to their roots a bit more, and you know, and start thinking about things in terms of the free movement of you know people across borders as well as money and goods, um, and and the sort of you know the the kind of tolerance that that should really come along with free market ideas. Um, and all of our political parties have, you know, given in probably the worst angels of their nature um, over the last 10 years or so. Um, you know, we've seen, we saw it with Labour with, you know, Chinese-sounding names. We saw it with National with their bizarre sort of um, opposition to the UN compact on migration. And, you know, hopefully there's been reflection on all parts. You know, I, I, th- I think, you know, if you look at social media, it's easy to think that everyone's getting into defensive crouches and that, you know, people are just sort of trying to, you know, sort of spray blame around. Um, but I think that, you know, in, in real life, in an actual society, people are actually thinking about what the events of the last, you know, week and a half mean and what it means for how they look at New Zealand and the world and how they act and how they go forward. I disagree. I think that only applies to a certain sector of New Zealand because, I mean, even on the, uh, the, was it the Friday where they were encouraging women to wear headscarves? There was all sorts of reports about, you know, people, you know, pretending to shoot women who were wearing them and pretending to cut their throats and being verbally abusive and stuff. So I think perhaps in our bubble, Ben, a lot of people are thinking about, you know, how we interact with those communities and, and, and what we do and and um, what sort of New Zealand we want to create. But I, I don't think that 
translates everywhere and I think that you know for us for some segments of New Zealand society it absolutely hasn't resonated that way um, let's talk a bit about the political response um, Jacinda Ardern has made uh, uh, headlines around the world there's no getting around that some of them kind of gushing some of them going losing a sense of proportion arguably even but we should look at the the way she responded politically to the situation she was very decisive she very early on set down some quite clear kind of almost like a kind of defined the terms of mm. the of, of 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 the story she tried to focus it as much as possible on the families on the community make it as inclusive as possible she as touched on before very early on um, in her second press conference um, in Wellington defined it as an act of terrorism. She refused to name the um, offender, the alleged offender. She um, spoke out on the role of Facebook, um, which I don't think we'll bother with this week. Maybe we come back to that another time. Mm-hmm. She talked about how that they cannot avoid their responsibility to address some very serious issues there and other online platforms. She pushed through gun law reform at a quite remarkable um, pace. Um, and she also, uh, although she said she hadn't, didn't think deeply about it, for her it was just an act of respect, she uh, wore a hijab, a headscarf, when she went to visit the families on the Saturday following in um Christchurch and that image I mean mm. you know images just are we all know that we all work somewhere in the media though the power of images that uh, had an incredible impact mm. it reverberated I mean what what more could we possibly have asked her to do I think um, I really can't think of anything more she could have done. To, to lead our country through this situation, I think. She's done a really magnificent job. I was talking to my mum about this the other day, and she has an interesting theory, which is, you know, Jacinda seems to be particularly good in a crisis. Mm. And my mum wondered if perhaps that was being the daughter of a police officer, a mm. former police officer, mm. if she's, you know, sort of been around someone who's, used to having to step up in a crisis and manage a crisis and be empathetic and um, a- and lead people through it and I thought I thought you know potentially that she's she's quite right um, I think she's done a an amazing job what I'm interested to see is being you'll you'll know more about this than me but when immigrants come to a country they tend to vote for the government that's in in power at the at the time because they feel a sense of loyalty and appreciation towards them and I'm wondering how her management of this issue may impact Labor's support in terms of um, in terms of our new New Zealanders the other thing too is I think it was really heartening to see um, the way um, the leader of the National Party responded as well in terms of um, being supportive of um, the reforms to the gun laws and I think you know, as leader of the opposition he's done a good job too. Um, I know Ben that you were frustrated by 
how long it took for National to come out and um, and declare their support um, of that. And it's been interesting because hasn't. I thought it was. I thought it would have been a good opportunity for Bridges to show some leadership of his own by actually just coming out and saying we'll support a ban, you know, immediately, mm, straight away, rather than rather than being passive. But I mean, you know, I think that's it's that's pretty trivial in terms of you know how things have actually turned out. Um, my concern there was that you know New Zealand First has had links with the gun lobby, and mm. so whatever was negotiated between Labor and New Zealand First, you know, sort of behind closed doors, um, would probably end up being. The situation. Fortunately, um, you know, New Zealand First have have not been immune to, you know, what happened on Friday, um, and you know, last Friday, and and so you know, we got sensible reform. Um, They've Bridges been very br- quiet, New Zealand First, on this. So it's I interesting. Pr- I think that's very wise mm. for them. Uh, given, Ron given, Marks all over the Colfo well, Facebook given, page. They they're big fans of Ron Marks. Winston Peters did travel to Turkey to the. Um, Islamic international organisation, name of which I can't remember exactly, but he, he kept pretty quiet there as well. Uh, yeah, he was yeah. fairly quiet there, but that was that was at, at his own suggestion, I believe. Um, and and it was important to get someone over there to talk to Erdogan, who was busy turning what had happened into a campaigning tool, rather cynically. Um, but as for the prime minister's uh, performance, her response, Ben, what, what's your? Oh, just you know, on out, outstanding. I mean, um, I, I I struggle to think of a better prime minister we could have had at you mm. know at this time. Um, you know, Jacinda Ardern has you know sort of emotional intelligence that's kind of off the scale, mm. um, and you know, for for a crisis that you know essentially is you know a massive expression of grief um, and. You know, I, I, you know, she was, she's, she has been, yeah, you know, particularly good. Um, I think the, you know, a, a lot of times people sort of deride, gov, uh, you know, a politicians' presentational skills. Yeah. You know, they, they, you know, they can be criticised as style over substance, you know, things like that. Um, but you know, actually, at moments like this, and we saw it in Pike River as well. You know, you do need, and the Christchurch earthquake. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of leadership is how well you're communicating, how well you're showing people that you understand, and and showing them a sort of emotional mm. way forward yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and 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 obviously, you know, the prime minister has done you know an incredible job of that. I think another thing that's impressive too wasn't just the speed with which she responded in terms of changes to our gun laws, but also, you know, talking about. Um, Prioritising sorting out the um, the immigration status of of those involved yeah. and yeah. their no yeah. you know, rallying ACC, offering to pay for all their funerals. I feel like potentially under our last government, those are things that would have been not really considered. Um, but that she um, had the mind to consider all of those things and most importantly enact them I think is again outstanding. She's been asked about um, how she those points I suggested about kind of setting the terms and defining the narrative or whatever she said that wasn't her mind at all but what she was focused on was um, mostly on victim identification because mm. of the importance um, in Islam for uh, funerals to take place as quickly as possible. Um, 
Thanks, guys. Uh, thank you, Tina. Thanks to Flick Electric, who sponsored this podcast. One, um, for those um, three or four of you who've made it all the way to the end, I can give you this scoop, um, which is that uh, after many years not drinking coffee, the Prime Minister, who's been focused on tea, has recently started drinking coffee again. That's a little scoop there for you. Mm. Um, has anyone else got anything else, or should we say farewell? Farewell. Farewell. We were loads more to discuss. We obviously didn't get across much of it there. We will talk again soon. Kia ora e te iwi. Te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.